1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. God's word with us this evening. Wasn't the worship team awesome this evening? Unplugged? That's the first time that's happened since I've been here. I, I actually thought that was brilliant. So thank you very much, guys. I know a lot of time and effort goes into uh, preparing our services, so I really appreciate all those involved the, involved, the people on the desk up the back, those who do supper for us as well, the greeters on the door. It's great to have so many people willing to serve within SDBC and particularly in this 6.30 service. We're going to start a new series this evening. What we're going to be talking about is what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And my desire and hope is that as we get to the end of this series, you guys are going to be so impassioned that you're going to want to be discipled. And the hope is that as we commence discipleship on a Sunday afternoon for our young adults come February, that all of you will put your hand up and we'll be so inundated, we'll be calling on the older members of the congregation to help us disciple. Are we excited? I hope so, because I am. And you know, if I only get one, I'm still going to be excited because I just love discipling people. I love seeing people grow in their faith. I love seeing people engage with Christ. And you know, I live for those moments when I sit one-on-one -on -one with someone, I'm talking to them about a biblical truth, and you see that light bulb moment, you see them get it. And you know, that, that to me makes everything I do worth it. I, I'm just so excited when people understand the things that Christ is teaching us and they apply it to their lives and they actually start living more for Him and less for themselves. That's what I live for. But as we move through churches and things like that, and I'm not just talking about SDBC, uh, it's churches that I've been to for a long time in my life. And when we talk to them about the gospel and you ask people um, what the gospel means, it's really interesting that they don't actually give a very good answer. A lot of people can't actually articulate what the gospel is. You know, everyone will say, well, it's the good news of Jesus Christ, and I'm not going to say that's wrong. But when you try and dig a little bit deeper and say, well, can you explain that to me? What exactly does that mean? It's amazing how many people can't actually give an answer. And I want you to think about that. If I was to go, I've got enough time. If I was to go one-on-one -on -one with you on a microphone this evening and ask you what the gospel is, how would you go? What would you say? Would you be comfortable? Would you be really uncomfortable? And the thing is, if you're uncomfortable, you're not on your own. And this isn't a failing on you. This is a failing of me and other church leaders who haven't given you this message, who haven't poured into your life, who haven't explained appropriately what the gospel is all about. And the sad thing is, there's so many Christians who can't actually do that. They can't articulate what their faith is all about. And for far too long, we as a church 
have assumed that people get it. We've assumed that people understand. And so all of us have fallen through the cracks in a lot of ways and we need to change that. We need to make sure that we do understand what the gospel is. So that's what tonight is about. We're going to be talking about the gospel. Can I just have the PowerPoint up the back too, please? Thanks, guys. I'm going to open in prayer, then we'll get into it. Okay, so let's just pause and pray. Father God, my desire tonight is that your name will be honoured and glorified this evening. We want to hear your voice through what is said this evening, Lord. I just ask that you'll give open hearts, open minds to accept the message that you've given me to speak this evening, Lord. And that, Lord, more than that, we want to apply it to our lives. We want to learn more about you. We want to draw closer to you and learn what the gospel truly is. We pray this now, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want to look very briefly at one passage of scripture. This helps if I turn it on. Um, brilliant. There's one passage of scripture in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for what? Everyone who believes. So the gospel message is out there, but the power is only there for those who believe. And if we're not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we should want to know it. We should want to dig deeper and understand what it is that God says, what it means, how do we explain it, how we should be living it. This gospel message that we speak about is incredibly powerful. It should be the one thing that shapes our lives. It should be the thing that causes us to rethink our attitudes. It should give us that reason to live, the purpose to go on. It should be our only motivation and the one thing that gives us strength, wisdom, discernment and power to live the life that God has called us to. And if we do that, whatever comes against us in this present age will not be able to stand. We will stand firmly upon what our Lord Jesus Christ has proclaimed to us and what his word tells us. It should be so vital to us as Christians that if we don't have it, if we miss it somehow, we will surely wither and die. That's how vital the gospel message should be to us. And if you don't grasp that, if you don't understand that, you need to fundamentally change things in your life. So what is the gospel? When we look... Sorry, I threw an extra slide in. When we look at Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, John the Baptist, that is, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is the first person to proclaim the gospel as we know it. And he came into Galilee and he did that. So when we think about the word gospel, we have this tendency to think that it was exclusive to Christianity. If the gospel that we speak about is exclusive, how could Jesus proclaim that gospel? Because when Jesus came, those who heard the message he proclaimed had this man before him. They didn't know who he was. And obviously Jesus at that time, and they didn't know about what was going to happen. They didn't know what he was going to suffer, that he was going to die, that he was going to be wearied, that he was going to be raised on the third day. And then he rose to new life, life eternal with God. He ascended to heaven. He sits at God's right hand. None of that had happened. So what was the gospel message that Jesus proclaimed? And if this gospel message was powerful, Keep in mind, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Gospels, had not been written at that stage. So if this message is so powerful, what was it that Jesus proclaimed? And the thing is, the Gospel message that he made 
caused many people to make commitments. It caused people to change their lives. And the thing was, Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is a pronouncement of a new kingdom that is coming in. The gospel is a pronouncement that this kingdom would defeat everything else before it. There will be terms of peace offered to those who accepted this gospel message. And those who chose to believe the message would be accepted into the new kingdom. And they would be allowed to live. And this type of proclamation was not uncommon. In fact, uh, neighbouring kingdoms would oftenly, often have disputes over uh, borders and things like that. And what would happen? They'd go out to fight. And so the victorious army would pursue the defeated army all the way back to their city. And if it was a particularly um, definite defeat, like they were totally overrun, the general, the defeating general, would possibly just kick back and sip his cool lemonade in the shade and let some other people go to that other town. And what would happen? He would send an ambassador. And the ambassador would roll up and he would stand at the city gate and he'd say, Good news! To those that were in the city, this would be their defeated king's head. Where's the good news in that? And the thing is, he would say, we have good news for you. We have defeated your army, obviously. But if you accept our terms of treaty and become subservient to us, we'll allow you to live. And that was the gospel message. That's what was proclaimed. And so when we think about that defeated kingdom and things like that, what often happened? This ambassador would be there and he'd turn up at the city gates. He'd make his proclamation with or without the king's head, often with. And he'd say, we've got these terms of treaty. Do you accept them? And if the people in that city decided they weren't going to accept those terms of treaty, they'd often beat up that ambassador. Sometimes they'd beat him up so severely that he lost consciousness, they'd tie him to his horse and send him off. Sometimes they decided they were going to kill that guy. So they'd behead him, tie his body to the horse and send it off. What's going to happen? These guys are already defeated, their army's gone. And the ambassador's body, alive, dead, whichever way it is, gets back to that defeating general. He's not just going to take a few guys with him. He's going to muster his entire army. He's going to come back to that city and he's going to totally annihilate it. Will there be any second chances? No. Will there be any mercy or grace at that time? No. They have been offered the terms of treaty and they chose to reject it. The outcome and the consequences are totally upon them. And so, when we think about the good news that was proclaimed to them, the good news was only good news for those who not only heard, but who accepted that message and responded favourably to it. So we need to think about when Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel in Mark 1.15. There's a lot behind what he is saying. He's saying... He's making a declaration that God is this conquering general. And the gospel announcement is the victory of God's Messiah. Who's the Messiah? Jesus Christ. And he sweeps 
over all the people, calling for them to accept the terms of peace that are being offered. And the ambassador is, of course, Jesus Christ. And when we understand this is the gospel message, it makes parables like the master and the vineyard so much clearer. I don't expect you to read that, but I've got it up there so you know I'm not pulling your leg. So he says, let's hear another, another, another parable, sorry. There's a master who has this vineyard and he puts a fence around it and he digs the wine press and he puts the tower up and he leases it out to people. And he allows them to farm the land and everything like that. And when the fruit comes to harvest and the harvest is finished, he sends his ambassador to get some of what has been grown, some of the profit. And what happens? He doesn't get any fruit in return. His ambassador, his servant, gets beat up. They beat one up, they kill another, and they stone yet another. And then the landowner, the master, says, you know what? I'll send my son. They'll respect him. And so he sends his son off. And what happens? These guys, they see that it's the son that's coming, the heir apparent to everything that they've taken possession of. And they totally disrespect him. They don't listen to him. They don't listen to the message. And they kill the son. They don't even send his body back. They cast it outside. What do you think is going to happen? That master is going to come. He's going to wipe those tenants out and he's going to lease that to someone else. And when we think about that story in line with what I've said about the gospel message, it just throws a whole new light on it. God created this incredible world for us to care for, for mankind to look after. And he created us as well. And we took it, God's incredible creation, and we did what we wanted with it. We didn't respect God. We didn't respect his creation. We didn't respect his expectations of us. And then God says, you know what, I'm not happy about that. So he sent his prophets to speak to us. And we disrespected his prophets. They were beaten up. Some of them were killed. All of them, by a lot of people, had their messages rejected. And then God sent, you know what, there's only one way to make this happen. I'm going to send my son. And so God sent his son into the world to submit to his creation. And we took him. And we falsely accused him. And we sought the most wicked, painful death we could put together for the son of God. And we afflicted upon him. We killed him. And the mind-blowing thing about the gospel message is that's not where it ends. We'd all be at an end if it was. Because we know that Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to many witnesses and then he ascended to heaven. He's interceding for us at the right hand of God. Do you know what that means? It means that he's in God's ear and he's going, hey God, Charlie needs this, Charlie needs that. Did you see Charlie do this? God, can you just help Charlie in this situation? Charlie has prayed for this. And he's doing that for each and every one of us. That's what it means to intercede. And when I say those prayers that are really messed up, and I know what I'm trying to say, but I don't articulate it right. Jesus says, it's cool, God. This is what Charlie really needs. And he's doing that for me right now, 
and he does that for each one of us. And his death and resurrection was so that we could have life with him, so that we could be saved. And so that first step that I talk about, you've heard it in church circles, it's called justification. That's being put back in right relationship with Jesus and with God. And that's when we acknowledge that when Jesus came, he took my place. As Pastor Darrell said at the table, he took my place. He took my punishment upon himself. He took the judgment that I should have had. And because he did that, and because I acknowledge him now as my Lord and Saviour, I have life eternal and life eternal with him. That's the first step with our relationship with God, but that is only the beginning. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 14, 1 to 4 that we read out earlier. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you a first enforcement, that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures. That wasn't it, was it? We read the next bit. Paul here is again proclaiming the gospel to the Corinthians. He's declaring to them that he spoke this message to them, that they received and that it's upon the facts of this message that they stand firmly in their faith. The gospel message did not only save them when they gave their lives to Jesus, it continues to save them. As it says in verse 2, they are being saved. This is what we call sanctification. That daily setting aside ourselves and our lives for the use of Jesus. It's about us saying to God, what do you want for me and my life today? We're being saved as long as we hold fast to the word that has been proclaimed. And that is what Paul's saying here. So it isn't just about that first step of accepting Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. There's an ongoing commitment to obey all that Jesus tells us to do. And we need to believe this. We need to realise that our eternal lives depend on our understanding of what the gospel message is. And what our response should be. Regardless of what people say, it is a story based on fact. And these facts are based upon one man. Upon his personal history. The history of Jesus the promised Messiah, the one promised way back in the Garden of Eden who would make a way where there was no way. And here we have laid out the evidence of his life, his death and his resurrection. And Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to many after his resurrection. And this is the passage we read earlier, sorry. Man, I'm messing up tonight, aren't I? That's the one. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 to 8, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Think on this for a little bit, will you? What we have as absolutely necessary in the gospel message is that Jesus died and that he rose again. And that he is living and will continue to do so forever. That is foundational to our faith. If that isn't true, then we are believing for no reason. And these are the most essential facts. We need to claim these truths. We need to believe them. Never sway from them and never be afraid to present them as absolute truth. And the evidence is well documented throughout scripture. Jesus was dead and buried, has appeared in different places at different times. First to Cephas, that was a single man. Then to the 12 apostles, and then to 500 people at once. 
And Paul then says that if you don't believe me, these guys, a lot of them are still alive. The implication is, go and ask them. That's why he says in this passage of scripture, most of whom are still alive. You can check this account. You can check whether what I'm saying is true. And then Jesus also appeared to James. And it's generally accepted that this James is the brother of Jesus. The mention of James and Paul are two of the most convincing, convincing testimonies that you'll ever find in scripture. James is Jesus' brother and scripture tells us clearly that James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In John 7, James and Jesus' other siblings are giving him a bit of a ribbing and sarcastically telling him to go up to Judea to show his great works. Then maybe people will believe that he's Messiah because James 7.5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And the thing is, this is, the, this is what happened up until the point of Jesus' death. James didn't believe that Jesus was the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And James somehow goes from unbelief to being so committed to Jesus that he ultimately dies for him. It's an incredible story about James. James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church, the Christian church. And he is so committed to his brother to his saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He prays so frequently in Jerusalem on the stones there. His knees apparently were like the knees of camels. Have you seen the calluses on the knees of camels? That's what James was known for. These incredibly callous knees for the time that he spent in prayer to Jesus. He was so committed to prayer. And the leaders, the Jewish leaders came to James and said, we want you to proclaim to all of these people that Jesus, your brother, was not the Messiah. And James says, no worries, mate, I'll do it. And so they take James, they take him up to the top of the temple and all the people were gathered below them at the temple. And so the Jewish leaders give him a bit of a prod and say, tell them what you need to. And so James stands up there and he proclaims, Jesus Christ, my brother, is the Messiah. The Jewish guys didn't take that so well. They threw him off and he died in the courtyard of the temple. What happened in this guy's life that moved him from total unbelief to total belief? So committed to Jesus and his cause that he was willing to be thrown to his death in order that Jesus' name was proclaimed. And the only explanation we have is that Jesus rose from the dead. That's the only thing that would change James's life. And we're told here that Jesus appeared to James. Then there's Paul, who was also called Saul. We know the story. And Saul was zealous for God. He believed he was serving God. He believed he was persecuting those who followed this Jesus, this guy who was creating all sorts of problems in their kingdom. And Saul believed he was a false prophet, this Jesus, and that no one should be following him. And Paul was at the top of his game. He was respected by everyone. He had great wealth. I believe he would have had a great uh, amount of property and things like that. And he was totally opposed to the followers of Jesus. And then somehow he becomes one of them. Something incredible had to have happened in order for that to occur. And Paul testifies that his life was changed because Jesus appeared to him. 
If you remember, he was knocked off his horse. There was a bright light. There was this voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you persecute. And Saul's life was totally changed at that point. And this guy was so feared when he tried to go to the disciples and say, hey, I'm one of you. They went, no way, man, we are not believing that for a moment. Even Ananias, who God appeared to and said, I need you to go and speak to this guy. said, hey, God, just one moment. Do you realize this is the dude who is killing us? And God said, hey, it's all right. I've got a purpose for his life. You need to go. You need to speak to him because I've told him you're coming. I suppose you don't say no to God when he tells you that. But it's an incredible story. And Paul's life was changed miraculously. And we know the rest. He just goes on to be this incredible guy who just proclaims Jesus everywhere he goes. So what have we covered so far? When Jesus came, he proclaimed the gospel, which was a declaration of the kingdom of God, that it was coming, that it was at hand. Those who heard the message understood that the declaration being made was about God being that conquering general and that the gospel announcement is that the victory of God's Messiah would sweep over all people. This would be a kingdom that would know no end. It would be all powerful. And he called for them to accept the offered terms of peace. And foundational to this declaration is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That had to happen. And with all this in mind, how are we to proclaim this message? Because that's what each of us is called to do. That's our commission. This brings us to another guy in the Bible and more evidence of the power of God and his message. And this is Peter. I love Peter. He's just such a cool bloke. And this is a guy who declared to Jesus that everyone else, all these other disciples, they're going to fall away, Jesus, not me. You and me, Jesus, to death if it needs to be. These other guys that don't love you like I do. I'll stand by you to the very end. And then he betrayed Jesus three times. And he did it because he was scared. He was afraid. And then we come to Acts. Acts chapter 2 is the account of Pentecost where the promised helper or Holy Spirit is poured out upon those who believe. And Peter is one of those disciples who receive Holy Spirit. And he goes from a man who is scared or afraid to someone who is incredibly bold for the Lord. In Acts 2, 36 to 38, he says, Let all the house of Israel... Man, I'm doing well tonight, aren't I? Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And a little further down, uh, we see, sorry, that's what I was reading, wasn't it? Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of Holy Spirit. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection is the day of Pentecost. 50 days. Peter stands up. And the basic message that he gives, Jesus is the son of God. You killed him. 
You better say you're sorry. John Piper. Love it. But that's basically it, isn't it? Jesus is the Son of God. You killed him. You better say you're sorry. And it's the same approach that Jesus had when we read way back in Mark 1, 14 and 15. The message is about the kingdom of God coming and the people need to repent of their evil ways. They need to turn around. They need to believe the gospel message and they need to apply to their lives. And it's incredible how many people shy away from that being the message of God. So many are happy to speak about God being love. That is not the entire gospel message. It was God's love that motivated him to send Jesus to us. And we don't seem to be comfortable to give people the whole message. Can I tell you, people are going to hell because we want to love them. Do we really love them? If we're not willing to tell them the whole gospel message and allow them to have the choice to follow God or not follow God, do we really love them? The parable that we read about the vineyard and the tenants finished with this, verse 41. They said to him, this is in response to what is the master going to do to the tenants? He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. This is what's going to happen. This is the entire gospel message. Those who do not accept the terms of treaty, believing in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, will be judged. There will not be any second chance. They have opportunity now to hear the terms of treaty and accept them. So just like in the parable of the tenants, Jesus is going to return at God's direction and in God's time. And he will judge the world. Those who have given their lives to Jesus and live for him will enter eternal rest with him. Those who've rejected him will be cast out. And they'll suffer eternal separation from all things good. I say that because so many of my friends, when I used to tell them about heaven and hell, they would say, hell's going to be a great party, I'll be with all my mates. That is not what hell's going to be like. If they think their mates are good, they're going to be separated from them. God is good. They're going to be separated from everything good. There's going to be nothing good in their eternal outcome. Nothing good. And so our proclamation of the gospel needs to contain this. It is the truth of God. When Jesus proclaimed it, lives were changed. When Peter proclaimed it on that first day of Pentecost, over 3,000 men were added to the church. It's an incredibly powerful message. It has the power within itself. We do not need to change it. We do not need to think we have to soften it. We proclaim the message and God looks after it. You know the parable of the seeds? Is there any farmers here? Anyone who's ever farmed? One person. You know, it's a dumb story as far as a farmer's concerned. You do not throw seed in places where it's not going to grow. If I went to my brother-in-law's place and run his seeded down the road, he'd kill me. You just don't do it. You throw seed on fertile ground. But what Jesus is saying is, don't worry about the ground. I just want you to throw the seed wherever you are. If you're standing in the middle of the road, throw the seed. It's not up to you. I am going to look after it. I'm just calling you to throw the seed. What's throwing the seed? Throwing the seed is proclaiming the gospel. Throwing the seed is telling people about Jesus. And Jesus says, just do it. The rest is up to me. You can't change things. 
So wherever you go, whatever you do, if you're on rocky ground, throw the seed. If you're on fertile ground, throw the seed. Wherever. He'll look after the rest. And so we are called to be faithful in proclaiming the gospel message. And I want to give you one way of doing that. I love the God, man, God, what if you do, what if you don't. Has anyone heard of that? A few of you should raise your hands because I've told you about it before. Yep, praise God. Okay, God, man, God, what if you do, what if you don't. Okay, God, man, God, what if you do, what if you don't. God created this incredible world. He created everything perfect. With this method, you can do this in a matter of seconds. You can do it over an hour if that's what you want to do. You just need to flesh these five things out. Okay, so God. God created this perfect world for mankind he created this beautiful garden he put man in it and he said I want you to tend to this it's going to be beautiful I'm going to walk with you in the garden we're going to have fellowship with each other it's going to be beautiful man took that and said you know what this is pretty cool but I want it myself I want to make my decisions I want to do things my way and you know what? I want to know what God knows. And so we, from that time on, decided we were going to do our own thing. And of course, this brought sin into the world because we disobeyed God. God wasn't happy with that. And God made a way where we would be put back into this relationship with him, where we would get to walk in the garden with him again. Who's looking forward to that? I know I am. It's going to be so wonderful. And so God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take our punishment, to die in our place so we can have life eternal with him in the most incredible creation. If you believe that, God, man, God, what if you do? If you believe that, you will have life and life eternal with him. What if you don't? You will be separated from everything good. You will suffer eternally for the choices that you have made. God, man, God, what if you do, what if you don't? Very simple method. There's a number of other methods as well, but we need to be faithful in what we do. Some of you perhaps have never heard the gospel message like that. I make no apology, but I, I want to share with you. I want to encourage you. I want to strengthen you in our faith. Next week, we're going to talk a bit more about discipleship, what it means to follow God, what it means to love him. I encourage you to come back to that. Invite some friends. It'd be really good. But all through, every time I stand up the front here, I, I just don't want to talk to you. I, I don't want to be just proclaiming to you. I want you to respond. I want you to pray. I want to gather with people and encourage them. I want you to ask questions. So after the service, if you want to just come down the front for prayer, if you haven't had this right in your life, if you realize you need to get more serious about God, give him greater priority. Come down the front, let's pray about it. That's, that's what we need to do. We need to grow each other in the faith. And if you want to know more about discipleship, what we plan for the future, come down the front also. I'd love to do that. I'm going to close in prayer, hand back to the worship team, and uh, trust that uh, God has spoken to you this evening. Father God, thank you so much for your love for us. And thank you, Lord, that you give us a message to proclaim that is a whole gospel message, Lord. It's a message that speaks about the incredible gift of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that that means, the forgiveness of sin. But Lord, it also speaks about the judgment that's going to come if we don't accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And so, Lord, for each one of us, I pray that we'll take that message deep into our hearts. We'll understand what it means. If we reject it, 
and if our friends reject it. And Lord, you give us a passion and a fervor to see our friends brought into your kingdom. We want to proclaim your loving grace to them each and every day, Lord. We want to draw them into your kingdom. Father, give us hearts for the lost, I pray. Let us be found on our knees continuously before you, Lord, begging you to bring people into our path each and every day, those divine appointments, Lord, so we can see your hand moving in our lives, but proclaim your name to the lost and see people brought into your kingdom as a result. Have your way with us, I pray, Lord. Stir hearts, draw us to you. In Jesus' name, amen.